namo tassa bhagavato arto samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arto samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arto samma sambuddhassa i will awaken quickly with and for all sentient beings and for all beings wisdom compassion and non-clinging awareness well this next uh, section in the text is um, animals listed as as animals, yes. And I thought tonight we'd do animals and uh, the animal realm and the human realm. But after reading it, uh, we're looking at it again. I realized I think it's better tonight just to stick with the animal realm because um, I find... Uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase from a text I read of the Dalai Lama a book I read of the Dalai Lama not so long ago. I use this as a, a way of um, giving authority. I'll quote something similar to what he wrote. There are likely some errors in the old teachings to do with worldview, referring to the Abhidhamma, Abhidharma view of the, of the way the world is in classification. And uh, as he said, these will need to be changed as um, is checked with science. Uh, A lot has happened over the centuries concerning the view of classification of creatures uh, on the planet. So far as we know, there is a field of astrobiology. A lot of actually uh, people working in the field of astrobiology. There's been no life forms found outside the planet, but according to, I would say, most biologists today, uh, nobody would expect there not to be an abundance of life throughout the universe with the billions and billions of planets. It's estimated the number of planets found outside of this one is shockingly huge. They're they're finding planets every day right now, Uh, extrasolar planets every day. Uh, So the possibilities of life um, are vast, 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 vast. But the classification of life and the understanding of life uh, is um, so well studied and and changing in some ways uh, that it's worth reviewing just some basic principles. I I would have actually liked to have um, prepared for a few days, put something together for you, uh, but um, might extend it over the next number of days for you. But I find that, that most people who study biology, even in school, uh, most of what they study is 10, 20, 30 years old in terms of view. And even some of the books I have, are 1994, are, are getting a little out of date. The, the, the field of um, genetic analysis is moving along so quickly, and what it's shown is so extraordinary uh, that I want to bring you some of those things. But um, I'm really not a specialist in... This, this field, so it's, it's a little bit, uh, I have to wade my way through it. It's, it's very um, technical area. But it's worth you getting a feel, just an introduction, to a very, very different view of the uh, animal world and what when it says animal realm and the different realms of creatures on the planet. So this is important. So remember, this is, this is a view from 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago 
of uh, the classification system. And basically, this classification system was fairly well fixed in stone by, let's say, about 1819, 2,000 years ago in the, uh, the latest Abhidharma systems, and um, didn't really change from there. It sounds very familiar to the Greek models and so on that ended up in uh, medieval Europe. And uh, some of those models were very, very difficult to shake um, until the scientific method came along and it started following, 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 following. So let's uh, enter the... Do you have any questions at all? So we're going to spend a bit of time on the animal section. We'll see about tomorrow, maybe into the, the human realm. But to understand the human realm, and I have to just di uh, d diverge a little bit from the text at some point, um, we'll have to have an understanding because since 95% of the human uh, is not a human being, it would be really good to review a little bit of the other realms of beings on this planet. So I spent a lot of my time investigating the microscopic, but certain areas of the microscopic, just pockets of the microscopic, I don't have a clue about, or a little bit of a clue. A little bit of a clue means I do some reading, I do some looking, but I haven't actually probed it. There's areas where I have, and getting deeper and deeper and deeper, but uh, to let you know, it, it, it's vast. It's vast. And um, we have put our, ourselves in the central place. Uh, so my, my own personal study of other creatures is because, at least as I told you probably before, it could be 99.9% of all the creatures on the planet, maybe 99.99999% of all the creatures on the planet, we can't see. And we've never even encountered so this interests me, as you can tell, because the nature of illusion, the nature of phenomenal existence, uh, is what is not apparent to ordinary consciousness. So liberation, to me, which certainly uh, I was encouraged to study and practice and explore by my teacher, who is a great explorer, and challenged everything, including this text, uh, all the way through. Upheld it, view, but also brought his own experience into it, I so too am bringing my own experience and Namaz Rinpoche's view that uh, um, understandings today and maybe even understandings then were not always brought out in this text. This, this text is, um, if you want, certain aspects of it, not in terms of the Four Noble Truths, not in terms of the nature of suffering, not in terms of the nature of liberation, not in terms of the nature of wisdom and so on, but certain Aspects of it are very, if you want, medieval Indian, cultural, of what they knew, which was quite sophisticated. You read about the embryology, it's quite something. And, and by the way, I have texts that have much more detail of when the winds move and when this develops and when that develops. These are all to do with inner yogas, inner yoga development and what happens on the inner plane. So that's another area, but in terms of understanding the, um, the world, let's say, the world of samsara, it's worth uh, op opening this, this up. Okay, so with, with all due respect to the text, which I have a lot of respect, it's quite sophisticated, uh, and was very sophisticated for its time, um, I'd like to embark on a little bit of a, um, a catch-up process in terms of what people know about creatures.
And to understand this, don't think it's just theoretical. There are thousands and thousands of biologists for uh, hundreds of years now who have dedicated their lives to understanding uh, the creatures in the plants, how they develop, how they reproduce, how they metabolize, all these things. And the work is very, very well done to the point now where there are research teams in the United States and uh, maybe Europe, I know certainly in the United States, maybe in Canada, who are working, they're called synthetic biologists, and they're working to create the first cell from scratch, as if you would build a car. So the understanding of molecular biology, the understanding of cell components and how it's working, uh, is to the point where there's some optimism. The prediction was any day now. It hasn't happened yet. But it's not very far away, likely, for the actual building of the first um, synthetic forms of life. We're already very close to that in the sense that there's enough knowledge now to uh, produce life forms. For instance, a picture I have somewhere um, of an artist. It's a little strange to wonder about the motivation, but an artist decided to work in a, in a cell biology lab uh, and wanted to do some far out things in the genetic engineering field and produce art, so produced a cactus with human hair coming out of the top. And called it art. Well, yep, it's all possible. Not necessarily in this being's book, but uh, you know, all possible. Avant-garde art. Uh, and was this, some people now um, go into these labs and now uh, play with life forms to alter genetics and so on to create life forms never seen before and call that art. Uh, so that's that's that. But what I want to say is the the understanding and what isn't understood too. But the understanding um, of life has come in such a shockingly fast way that many of us, uh, I'll include myself here because I'm learning um, every single day vast, vast amounts, unlearning vast amounts. Uh, if you had any idea, you'd be shocked at what is possible because of the understanding of how um, uh, life, life works on this planet. Anyways. Okay, with that little introduction, let's, let's read the text first. I called for questions anyways. Any, any questions? No, nope, don't see any. Okay, carry on. Just kidding. Anybody have any questions about previous? Yes? Uh, two, que two questions. Um, can you uh, talk a little bit more about the, uh, con um, the concept of mentoring on Domas, Olmasa, and Pekka, and Insight? possible. Well, first of all, it's possible that we have to review, we have to review the tapes so there's evidence for this. Yes. But it's possible that there was a misunderstanding or not hearing or a little bit of slippage on this. Um, concerning the uh, practice of what we call insight for liberation. I have noticed that some people are trying, because of the inbuilt desire to do so, uh, in the observation and, and the tracking or the discrimination of 
the three kinds of feeling, three kinds of mental tone of um, upeka, somanasa, domanasa, to try to correct it, try to move it, try to shape it towards a pleasurable experience. I, I, didn't, I don't believe I said that, and I didn't indicate that. If you are uh, engaging in a meditation such as anapanasati, meditation on breath, both as a meditation on tranquility and as a meditation on insight, then you would like to learn why and when the pleasurable qualities of body and mind are interrupted to create or to allow more moments of calm, more moments of blissful awareness. Okay? But if you are, as I instructed, investigating impermanence and building the mind of uh, mindfulness and awareness of impermanence for liberation, for insight, then you don't need to do any correcting whatsoever. You don't need to reshape. You don't need to... The clinging to wanting to be in a pleasurable state is understandable, but it's clinging. So what I said to do is to watch the arising and passing away and being able to spot or name without interfering. You don't have to say, oh, well, I'm, I'm having too many uh, upekas. I'm having too many neutral moments. I'm having too many uh, uncomfortable mental states. No, don't do that. Get used to remaining unmoved no matter what happens. So if you enter into a pocket, like an air pocket in a plane, you, don't have, you know when you go into an air pocket in a plane, you have no idea how long it's going to last, is that right? I mean, the pilot doesn't come on and say, by the way, this, is going to be, this one's going to be 30 seconds. Doesn't come on and say, by the way, we're going to be, we're going to be in air pockets for an hour. That, wouldn't do that, would he? And they wouldn't know, or he or she, yes? So you don't know how long the air pocket is going to... I had one coming out of New Zealand once a couple of years ago. It's two hours of dropping up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Two hours. Maybe more. Maybe it might have been three hours. It, the longest I've ever had. Just continuous. Yeah. You have no idea. Others? What? A minute? 30 seconds? That's it. So you don't know, do you? How long it's going to be dominasa, 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 dominasa. That air pocket of what? Unpleasantness. Unpleasant mental feeling. Or pleasant mental feeling, right? Or neutral. You have no idea how long that air pocket's going to last for. Any idea is to presuppose what it should be and how it should be, which means it's clinging, yes? So the art is to begin to enter the nature of impermanence without pushing it one way so you see beginning, middle, end. Especially the end. So you let go. As opposed to saying, oh, I can't wait to see beginnings. I can't wait to see them end. Well, I, I actually like to see the domanasa end and the opeka end, but I'd like to have some more somanasa. So this is clinging. So to, to cut through clinging and to come to a non-conceptual, radiant state of pristine awareness that is uh, free, one has to let them end. One has to let them cease. But, but that doesn't mean you selectively go, I want this, and oh, gosh, it's not happening. 
So you see? That's insight meditation. So I've given many times a very classic story to give you some convincing of this. But I've, I've told you this. You may have heard this many, many times. One that Namjoon Rinpoche repeated many times. Namjoon Rinpoche was practicing uh, classic Burmese Vipassana, the Mahasasayada tradition in, uh, in, in Burma or Thailand, Rangoon. Uh, I might have been Mahasasayada at the time. Would he have been dead by that time? He may have still been alive. One of his students was saying, one day, this is a very famous, one of the greatest insight masters in the last uh, century, very famous. And most of the systems of insight meditation that you study or you go to today are from Mahasasayada or Lady, Lady Saida, as, as people know. So uh, he's in this, in this monastery, in this retreat center, which is very famous, retreat center. And uh, uh, there's, so there's a, there's a monk meditating. Yeah. The monk's meditating one, one day, or one, one evening. A, uh, he experiences, I think it's an 18-foot high radiant being, uh, oh no, a Buddha figure, in golden robes, descends and comes before him. Something like this. Yes? And he's in ecstatic absorption. I mean, he's just blown away into ecstasy and bliss. And, right? Somanasa. Yes? Somanasa. Full on somanasa. And then the robe, which is made of golden light, brushes his face. And he swoons in this incredible ecstasy. Well, of course, when he goes to see the teacher, what does he say? Well, Mahasasayada, great master of insight, respectively, I'd like to report my message. Yes, go ahead, Bhikkhu. Well, yesterday, when I was meditating on the rise and fall of the belly and so on, meditating on impermanence, this 18-foot-high golden Buddha of light came down before me, and I went into an ecstatic absorption, and so on and so forth. And then the robe glanced my face, and it was beautiful. It was glorious. My said, stupid monk. You stupid, stupid monk. Your meditation the day before was much better. You watch the rise and fall of phenomena. Rising, falling. Go back to rising, falling. Didn't care. Didn't care. Doesn't matter. Okay. Want wisdom? Then see what is. Not what you presuppose you need. Now, if you're developing calm and you want the deepening of loving kindness and the deepening of calm, you need to understand where the interruptions are. So therefore, you do what you can without being too pushy to, I, I like the technical term, to mitigate the circumstances, to alter the environment, the internal, external environment, to create an ideal situation for the arising of more supportive calm states. Do you see? And of course, more mindfulness and more prana circulation because of, of concentration is going to do what? It's going to actually bring about more pleasurable states. But not pleasure, pleasure, pleasure necessarily. It might just be, this is good. This feels good. You've had this, yes? Boom. It's good. just feels like right on. Instead of, I've had those, you know. Hour after. That's the actually kind of way that my body is all the time. Okay? So, over and over. Waves and waves of bliss. You're all going, yes, 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 yes. Waves of bliss streaming out of the hands. But it's about the worst thing you can have. 
if you want, for insight. So it's got to be clear, calm, and settled in a glow of, of energy and not this. Sometimes you go to some places, you know, and you see these, these students. They look at you as if they're like spiritual. <laughs> Looking for auras and psychic things. And, but they're not, they're not, they're not there. See? Okay. So this, this is an important point is for the inculcate, the development of insight because it was about impermanence. I care if you're in a loving, good state, but the number of blisses and the number of vomitings I'm not going to particularly keep track of. As a matter of fact, I sometimes, as my beloved teacher would do, get actually more excited about the vomitings than the blisses because the vomitings are actually very, very deep release. But the blisses can be extraordinarily deep too. So you need both. You want to have a mixture of both. There's nothing wrong with a mixture of both. Uh, one half day in utter glory joy and maybe the afternoon retching your guts out, letting the whole nervous system just unfurl and untangle. Nothing wrong with that. Or getting the heebie-jeebies. You know the heebie-jeebies? Is that the heebie-jeebies? Heebie-jeebies. Heebie-jeebies. How would you describe the heebie-jeebies? Goosebumps, uh, fidgeting, uh, all kinds of stuff like that, yes? It can be very uncomfortable, or it can be very blissful, or it can be semi, or neutral. You don't know what's going to happen. The point is that uh, pre-pushing, wanting to be a certain way, is for a certain type of meditation. Most meditation is taught, yes? I want to be a certain way, give me that, here's the technique, you go for that, yes? But when it comes to liberation, liberating, you have to let the states liberate. You have to let the mind, the, the, the wisdom mind, let it, let it work, let it work on you, and you're there to see what is not um, um, direct into this or that state, okay? Understand? So now to clarify again, because there seems to be a question about this or some, something to do with this, is there are two types of the upeka. Unfortunately or fortunately, they use the same word with the same spelling. But two different types having two different meanings. They have a similar meaning, but they are quite different. One upeka is an upeka of indifference, gray neutrality, which can be very, very subtle and very hidden from many, many beings, but pervasive sometimes. But the person won't know it, perhaps maybe for months or years of meditative work and, and so on, until they go, wow, I'm just a, a kind of a gray being. Or, my gosh, I spent a lot of time in my life just being gray. Just being kind of, chunt- you know the, word, the English word chuntering? Like a car in an English road, out in the sun, with a bonnet down, just chuntering along. I say, nice day. <laughs> I say, lovely orchard. I say, oh, there's a, cur- a turn. You know, not like, whoa, this is beautiful. But I say, hello, hello, how are you? Hello, chop. This, this is the chunt- chuntering along life, you know? All life chuntering along. Hello, how are you? Very good. No, no kind of, you know, up. No kind of down, just... We're chuntering along, going for a ride. This is our life. As long as it's comfortable. Don't, and don't rock the boat. So, so that's one kind of upeka. 
which is, which is, which is the neutral one, as described in Vedna. The other one is a Brahma-vihara and can be quite exalted. This is a neutral state that is not bowled over by any phenomena. It's a non-clinging awareness, which is a, which is a God-like quality that is unified with loving-kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy for the happiness of other beings. But it's very even. It has a distinctive, even quality of being it can be blissful. It doesn't have to be really blissful. Just very even, but up, but full of love and full of compassion, but you may not even see it. It may not be obvious, but it's just completely there. And it's not bowled over by any kind of phenomena. A person can come in and scream at you and say, it's all ending. There's an asteroid. This would be, this would be a classic pure equanimity of the good sort. There is an asteroid coming, and it's about 30 kilometers across. It's aimed right for North America. This is the end. We have 20 minutes to live. Good. Okay. I guess we'll die. Carry on. More meditation. That, that would be not indifferent, but just like, oh, okay, phenomena. Fascinating. Just making and making no stories about it. asteroid, non-asteroid, could be an asteroid. All phenomena are actually are empty. So, and so it will bust, bust apart the skandhas, and the consciousness uh, may or may not move, or who knows? Can't even tell that. Fine. So, so uh, this is this unshakability, but a very wise shake unshakability, rooted in loving kindness, rooted in compassion, and rooted in the joy and happiness of other beings for their transcendence. See. So you need, you need to spot both of those equanimities. Okay. There's a third there, but was that taken care of? Or is there that third? Um, well, you said yes. The dukkha and sukha can be experienced without samanasa and dhammanasa. Debatable point. Debatable point. Kind of presupposes a sensation without a lot of consciousness, but yes, I mean, as a pure thing, yes, but but not really. You know, this is something to consider. Uh, a a uh, body that is experiencing pain can experience a pleasurable mental sensation. Yes. But you see, it's uh, in the ancient texts, it's not on. It's not on. I don't know of an instance where it's, where it's like that. But I, I don't agree. So I'll say it. Don't agree. That, the reason, well, but you can see how it could be interpreted the other way is because if the pain is experienced with uh, equanimity, or in a state of dominasa, then the pain would actually turn into a pleasurable sensation, or a uh, neutral sensation, or some, not a neutral sensation, but actually it wouldn't be painful anymore. It would be seen for what it is. But I'm, I'm not convinced on that. Okay. For instance, there are people that could take a sword like this, yeah, 
and they can put it right through their cheek and not be experiencing pain like this. Should I show you? You don't like that idea, do you? But no pain. Just absolutely pleasurable, blissful sensation. Is it diluted or is it because the mental uh, qualities shape the actual physical sensation? Where does the physical sensation take place? So it turns out that in uh, all animals, not all animals, many, many animals, humans and many animals, we have receptors uh, external that pick up pain right away. So we can react immediately without any thinking. Zero thinking. Put your finger near the stove and it's taken off and there's, you don't think about that. If you think, you're in trouble. Or you never get near a stove. I don't go near stoves. I don't go there. But most of us do go there towards stoves. And we, most of us have had the experience of, of placing a hand on a hot stove and uh, taking it off right away, yes? That happens way before you can think. Then you have pain receptors uh, that, that pick up pain, but it's a conceptual pain. And in that conceptual pain, it can actually turn it into pleasure. Uh, a, a sadist, a masochist, uh, walking on hot coals in, in, uh, in Hawaii. Do you, have you done that? Have you done that? No? Yes? No. No. Okay. Oh, aloha. Uh, but many people do, and tourists do, and so on, and able to walk across coals as long as they're prepared mentally for it. And it turns out that because they're prepared mentally for it, they can alter uh, their bodies in a such a way that they can move across the rocks without being burnt. Hmm? So there's more to it than this. Take a, I'll take a review of that, that line. I'm trying to remember the poly for it. Those two lines. Check it out. I've always had a question about that. And I, in terms of personal experience, I'll t I won't tell you one way or the other. Go work it out. Okay? That's also partly the differences between uh, classic Abhidhamma teaching uh, which is a wonderful place to start for a very, very long time, and uh, teachings of mind only and Mahamudra and Zanjian. So this is where I have to teach, especially during the Abhidhamma retreat, teach a dual. I, I Not dual, but I have to teach one, but, but sometimes I would stray into the other where I go, oh, I'm not going to go there because I'm going to teach the classic Abhidhamma system of insight. Okay? Even though I'm holding a different particular view or different experience. Okay, but it's worthwhile developing that level of discrimination. Otherwise, it gets too fuzzy, or it can get too messy, or it can get too complicated, and then beings don't do well. I prefer that you develop really good, so I don't mind you questioning it, it's good, but really good fundamental practice of mindfulness and awareness. So it would be like uh, tasting coffee. Let's try tasting coffee, okay? So how would we break the first classification? Perhaps something like, is it acidic or is it bright? No, it's not bright. So there's two, right? Bright, not bright. Is it earthy? So you see, you can start to, if you have very, very general big classifications, bitter, sour, 
floral, earthy. And you can start that way. But if you were to take the entire flavor wheel chart all at once, you're lost, you're gone. Was that camel breath? No, it's not even anything like that. It's just a joke we used to have. Is that camel breath or is that shoe leather or there is shoe leather? Is there, um, you know, malt and all these kinds of things? It gets very, very complicated, but you actually start with, with things like high, low. Good. So, uh, and it's very useful. It takes you a long, long way. So where do you start? Start with something like uh, Upeka, uh, Somanasa, Domanasa. It's not wrong. It's right on. But then we can open up to 52. Okay? We can open up to 52 uh, um, uh, different qualities of Chaitasikas and go much, much, much deeper. And then we can even do other things with that. So this is, this is why classification is very important. Classification is good. Fuzzy-mindedness is bad. Shall I be like that? Classification is good. Fuzzy-mindedness is bad. Eventually, we need to uh, cut through and drop all classification. But don't do it right away because you can have a very, very fuzzy, fuzzed-out mind and think you're pretty cool. It's all life, man. So, so tonight, we're going to talk about life. And you can just say, well, but it's all life. This is just people's classification systems. That would be like saying, you know, uh, three or four hundred years of scientists working, they're all stupid because they don't know what they're talking about. They're just making up stuff. You know, years of taking a look at things with very bright people and each one testing each other and saying, well, okay, that makes sense. And 200 days, that makes sense. You know our system from Linnaeus, which is how many years old? Linnaeus? 17 something? Yeah. 1768. We're still using it today. Still works really well. There's problems with it, but it still works very well. That's pretty darn good, isn't it? Darwinian, Darwinian, uh, evolu Darwinian models of evolution have stood the test of time really well. They still do, over and over and over again. That's great. That's really good. Good observation, good, good models. Hmm? Lots of scientists working on it, hundreds and maybe thousands, poking holes in it, testing it. Great. Okay, any other questions? Does that, does that clear that up? Also, I understand about the two types of Pekka and what insight meditation is. It's to come to a profound experiences of impermanence, dukkha, and anatta, that there is no uh, essential core to phenomena. You know what I mean? Lasting, permanent core to phenomena, including you. Yes. I'm trying to fit it all together somehow. <laughs> Good luck. Oh, okay. No, but try, yes. Well, what are you trying to fit so together? I, you know, I understand about the UPEC and so on. I, like, I don't understand it, but I realize that. And that is all part of the scam, the bigger piece of skanda. Yes. Right? Bigger piece of skanda, the bigger, let's say, envelope or aggregate of the skandhas, yes? Yes? And so, where does samsara fit in? How? Where's the. Any creature's consciousness that actually clings to the aggregates, the five skandhas, okay. experiences samsara. Okay. 
How about that for definition? That's all. Just, just clear. If you, if, if the consciousness believes in the skandhas, it suffers. If the consciousness uh, sees through the skandhas as like bubbling rice, boiling rice on the stove, which each rice grain is individual, but all looks like rice and has meaning and ascribes meaning to it, they're suffering. And so the realms that we talked about two and a half pages ago, uh, the sense realm, fine form, are also part of this... Of samsara. Of samsara. Because those two, those beings too have, uh, have skandhas. And they believe in them. Let me go back to this because I hope it help. When, for most beings, when one is in a dream, the beings, the trees, the houses, the staircases, the bottles of wine, the birds, and the bees, and the clouds are all perfectly real. No matter how bizarre. For some who have vivid dreams go, this is bizarre. Matter of fact, this is a dream. But that's not very common among most human beings, right? So for most dreams, uh, that is real. But when you wake up, you go, what was I, why? Well, if you can actually uh, sense it, this is a very solid dream. Because the patterning is so deep that this feels very, very real. But all of you know, I hope you know, that at any given time you could change your mind and all of this changes. Give me an example, a very simple example without any weird stuff. You're in the room around, yes? How would you change it? How would you change it? You, you do it all the time. Some of you do it more often than others. Move the furniture. Move the furniture would change the room. You could take charge and say, okay, let's change the room. Let's paint all the walls orange. What else could we do? What do people commonly do when they don't want to be in the space they're in, but they want to change it? The most common. Turn the television on. <laughs> yeah, but there's another television they turn on all day long, sometimes eight, nine, ten hours total a day, which is a television. Fantasy. Fantasy. Switch out and create a fantasy world in the daydream, which is vividly real. And what happens to the room? It's gone. So you can be looking at me teaching, and I'm not there, because I've done that with people. Hi. As the eyes are averted at a 45 degree angle like this. Or, yes, all dharmas have frog's feet. We will, and, by the way, you want to know how many feet there are? Count them. There are two feet. There's two feet. Only two feet. Two. Meanwhile, there's a fantasy running. Some beautiful beach in Hawaii and the music. Da, da, da. <laughs> Aloha. Welcome to Hawaii. So, is this right? You're laughing, but, but you're not crying. But, but, yes? That's many, many, many hours a day. But that's called a fantasy. But actually, the majority of the day is not here. It's in a dream. But it feels very, very real. So right now, you could get up and change the dream by walking out the door. Sometimes a dream, you cannot walk out the door. You can do all kinds of things right now in this world to alter the dream. 
but still a dream. It's still the intent mind creating it. So insight, uh, good insight, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, deeper, breaks the dreaming mind. And the skanda are a way of just helping one sort through. It's a very good model that has worked for thousands of years to quickly and effectively uh, break through, break up the feeling that there is a solid, real self that lasts and lasts and lasts, when in fact there's nothing of the kind. It's kind of looking, if I may, like looking like buzz at, at a whole room of buzzing, buzzing mosquitoes and, and saying that the buzzing mosquitoes have uh, a super intelligence and knows exactly where they're going in life and they're going to live for five years, and so on, and they have stories. Right? The, those buzzing mosquitoes don't, but there's an organization to them. We ascribe way more to that organization. So uh, as we do with movies, we ascribe way more meaning to those little dots of, of color on a screen with sound. You know, Because you, 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 you were in this profession, yes? So you, you need to design a soundtrack to bring out the emotional content, yes? We call it suck them in. You, yeah, I was going to say that, but I was just thought I'd let you. <laughs> suck them into an emotion, to fear or to romance, yes? And just as they're coming closer together, it can be, and you know something really bad is going to happen, or something like that, and you know they're going to kiss, right? Eventually. It could take a whole movie, but they're going to kiss. And what happens? Just sound and images do what? Fill in the blanks. It's not, not real. So how much of experience is all fill in the blanks and creating a story, including a story about us? And, when, and, mo- and the funny thing is, you want to hear about the funny thing on the way of the form? <laughs> is if you were to pause for a moment, just pause, you wouldn't find the storyline. But the moment you get busy again, you find the storyline. Isn't that amazing? The minute you're absolutely serene, open and clear, in a state of loving kindness and presence, there's no story. There's not even a you. You just take a good look, there's no you. And yet, as soon as that collapses into a busyness and so on, the you's right back there. What am I going to do tomorrow? Am I going to become enlightened? This is in a retreat, right? In retreat dialogue. Am I going to become enlightened tomorrow? Maybe the next day? You know, this is the kind of dialogue you know, like that. And, and should I adjust my posture? If I adjust my posture, will that bring about enlightenment? You know what I mean? Me, 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 me. Uh, protect me, uh, feed me, uh, love me. Yes? All these dialogues? And the minute there's loving kindness and clarity and calm, it vanishes. As a matter of fact, some of you tell me they can't find your body. So rupa vanishes. Sometimes you can't even find your feelings. Sometimes you'll say, my God, there was no perception. Perception just happens, eh? Gone. No room. Vanishes. Like the King of England. Was it King Le- No, King of France or King of England? Could actually obliterate people because he, he knew about this. Just instead of chopping off their heads, he discovered he could actually put their finger, his thumb out and then he, wouldn't, he couldn't see their bodies. Just, because he's only seeing a small part. So he's, <laughs> you're gone. <laughs> 
but but uh, some people they 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 experience. Oh my God, shunyata, emptiness. I've experienced emptiness. They, they're meditating, the room vanishes. Their eyes well. Their sensory system just drops away. Hearing goes. All kinds of things go. So most of you, if not all of you, are experiencing it all all through the day, but don't recognize it. But then make a story about it and say, well, that was me. But if you reflect on it, you'll find there was no me present, but there is an organizing principle. Then you say, well, that's my soul. But if you look at that, you'll see, well, there isn't. Just isn't. But yet you want to have one, so any kind of phenomenal you can tag on as being a soul or being a me. Are you getting the idea? So insight drives a wedge in there, not because you think about it, because you see it clearly. And if it was... Here's the point. If Vipassana, or penetrative insight meditation, was an intellectual exercise, there would be no neurological transformation. The reason it works is because it causes wholesale physiological transformation in the organism, which leads to continuum change, as opposed to... Raphael, you go upstairs and... Get a cough drop for me. Slide the bed. Thank you. Might be one. There might be one in here. That's what happens when you change pants. Don't change pants. That's okay, Raphael. It's just a leg. Go for it, Patricia. Go for it, Patricia. That serves you right for sitting on the floor <coughs> or crossing your legs. So what did I learn from all this? Oh, Don't change your pants because you change your pants, you got the throat lozenge in the other pants. Uh, yeah. Before coming to class, yes, absolutely. Always check your pockets. Yeah. My 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 dear sister, my dear sister Debbie told me that my mother trained her uh, at a very young age that you never leave as a woman, you never leave home without your lipstick. Absolutely. And you're compact. Never. <laughs> I enjoyed that when I learned when I learned that. She says, you know what I learned from my mother? I said, we learned many things from our family. She says, you know what I learned? Never leave home without lipstick. <laughs> yes. That's a joke, but rose, it's true. Rose scented lipstick. Rose Must have been rose scented lipstick. Yes, go ahead. So this, the Scandavin are... The, uh, sca- the Scandas. Scanda, Scanda mm-hmm. are... What I wrote down from what I understood you talking about them the other day, they jostle together. They they alternate at such a fast speed. Yeah. And they and appear to be one entity. Me. Me. Exactly. A feeling of a solid reality, but they're moving at a very fast rate. So, what um, Susan asked about the it, it, beginning to. No, Eve, just, just leave it on the arm. Just leave it on the arm. So that's much better. Just leave it on the arm. Go ahead. So, uh, to begin to discern the difference between uh, the um, indifferent, pleasurable, unpleasurable, is the beginning of the unjostling or the... That's right, exactly. 
the speed it's then, slowing down. And then what I've been noticing is naming the, you talked, I, I heard you mention this morning about naming the sound, you know, mm -hmm. so it's a bird or it's a, so the, how quickly the story, before I even get to think pleasurable, not pleasurable, the story's already there. Yeah. It's unbelievable. So, so you will realize, I hope you realize, to be able to develop insight, may mean wisdom, not psychological wisdom, you have to slow way, way down. And you have to be able to now experience physical and mental phenomena at the 20, 30 millisecond level minimum. You can all do it. You think you can't, but you can all do it. Which means you have to, the breath must slow deeply, the mindfulness must increase, and you're going to start to see things you've never seen before. And you go, my goodness. Because it's, po it's all possible. You can all do it. Well, you can all do it right now. That's, see, the funny thing is, you can all do it right now and you're doing it. But it's too busy to notice that you're doing it. Like the, the ability, if there's a bell here, somewhere there's a bell. Maybe under there's a couple. There's a bell. Try to remember the number on this. Anybody remember the number? On. <laughs> you would have liked that if it just stayed in the air, didn't you? How close are those intervals together in terms of time? Like waves, how close are they together? You're picking each one up. Can you pick them up? Less than a third of a second. So you're already doing it. You're picking up data and discerning to 30 milliseconds. Sorry, 30, yeah, 30, uh, 30 one thousandth of a, of, a, of a second. One hundredth. Yeah, standard? Standard discernment? 150. 100 milliseconds, so that's one hundredth of a second. No? Try a tenth of a second. Get my math right. Tenth of a second. So you're able to do it. I get way, way, way down there. How about detection on your, your fingertips and things? You wouldn't believe how fine the fingers are for discerning uh, texture and points. It's down to like 20, 20, 20 microns. It's extraordinary. I forgot what we measured it to in the Abhidhamma retreat. What was it down to? 30, 30 microns? Something like 30 microns. 30, um, 1,000 millimeter. It's extraordinary. Hmm? So you can all do it, and you actually do it all the time, but too busy to notice what's happening. So slowing down and being in deep retreat allows the organism to start getting accustomed to notice how profoundly accurate its measuring devices are of consciousness. And that's called vinyana. That's the power of vinyana in Pali or vijnana in Sanskrit, which is consciousness that can actually look at itself. You can say judgmental, but it can actually look at itself and name it can describe. It's quite something. Like the flapping of a, of a, a flag in the wind. 
all the movements of that flapping. What's the intervals in those with the eye? It's amazing. And yet you can do it. How about the flapping of a bird's wing? Just watching a bird. 20, 30, 20, 20, 30 times a second? Of a hummingbird? So of course you can do it. You can all do it. You all have the resources to do it. It's just a matter of actually developing and training that way and having somebody help you put your nose in it, point it out, so you can actually get started and get a very clear appraisal of it. Otherwise, it's very hard to do. You just create stories, more stories. It should be an interesting tape. Suck, suck. Someone's going, eight slurps per second. <laughs> ah, good insight meditator. Okay, shall we enter into the animal realm? Any others? That's important. This is good. I don't mind. I don't mind. Uh, very, very happy to uh, receive questions on uh, meditation practice. Clarify doubts. Clarify technique. Clarify what one is up to. the animal realm. Their classification is fourfold. You see how early classification systems are? It's called taxonomy. Taxonomy, taxons. Their classification is fourfold. Those who have many legs, four legs, two legs, and those who are without legs. Hmm. Is that very satisfying? <laughs> Things with legs. Okay, that's pretty good. Well, we can end it there. Those are animals. Things with legs. <laughs> so, is a centipede an animal? Has legs? Yes. Is a ciliated protozoa that has thousands of little legs, so-called legs, for movement, is that an animal? Mm -hmm. Yes. This is wrong. By that system. By that system. Giraffe, animal? Okay. Octopus, animal? Okay. Starfish. Legs or not legs? Part legs, part not legs. Used for locomotion? Okay. Would you say that's the definition of an animal? According to the system. Okay. Where are they located? Ocean, plain, or forest? Mountains? What happened to mountains? What happened to mountains? I want to know what happened to mountains. Ocean, plain, or forest? The air. How about the air? air. How about air? Yeah. Air? Lakes? Streams? In the ground? In the ground? For most of them, the ocean is the place they reside. More creatures in the ocean 
This is, by the way, coming from India, not from Tibet. Tibetans didn't have an experience of ocean, but they referred to the Indian text, and the experience is from an Indian text, except unless it's a meditation. So for, for Tibetans, very few of them ever saw the ocean. Very, very few. It's a very long distance to get to any ocean. So when they refer to the ocean a lot, that's meditative ocean. And all the reference to what they knew about these things came from the Indian text, which they, which they took as gospel, just as, just as the um, scientists, so-called scientists, or pre-scientists of the uh, medieval era took Greek knowledge as fundamentally true. Whether they had seen it or not, it was, it was fact. Uh, received wisdom. What type of suffering do they experience? The suffering of being used, the suffering of slaughter, and the suffering of being eaten by one another. The first is accorded to the domestic animals under the power of humans. Okay, so the, four, the, the first one, which is being used. Hmm? The suffering of being used is accorded to humans. Powerless they are tortured, quote, powerless they are tortured, hands, feet, whips, and iron hooks enslave them. The life of an animal. How about... Um, uh, huskies in dog sled team harnessed uh, in the Arctic. I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about southern uh, teams. I'm talking about traditional Inuit teams. Harnessed, tethered, left alone, given some meat. They can howl all they want, and nobody cares. Hmm? That's their life. They're not petted. They're not taken indoors and petted. They're not considered pets. They're considered to be work creatures. And if you need a fur collar, a new fur collar, you should. You shouldn't. You put a new fur collar on. Powerless, they are tortured. Hands, feet, whips, and iron hooks enslave them. Uh, where I live in, the, in a, in a Calouette, in what was called Frobisher Bay, Next-door neighbor just across, oh, very short way. Perhaps buildings were as far away as from here to, to a little further than to Greg, is we had some um, traditional hunters that lived there in the house, and they staked up one of their dogs between the two buildings on a post. Didn't matter what weather, minus 40, minus 50, never took it in, and it went crazy. So it howled, and sometimes it howled all night long. Ah, like howled, howled, bellowed all night long for years until one day it wasn't there. So we found out what happened to it. And someone needed a new fur collar. That was the end of that. So uh, powerless, they are tortured, hands, feet, whips, and iron hooks enslave them. The second suffering is accorded to wild animals. As is stated, some die for pearls. Oh, they have pearls. What happens? You got something beautiful? I get it from them. Right? Chuck it open. Pearl. Some die for pearls. Some die for wool. Some die for bone. Yes? Chop up a, chop up a creature to make bone ornaments or to make bone furniture or uh, in the Arctic, uh, whale bones, uh, bowhead whale bones were used to build houses. Very important. Eh? Make needles. Used for houses, house structures, the, the arches, for a tent, for a tent, a rock structure, the big bones. Yeah. So you actually walked into essentially 
the internal structure of a bowhead whale. Everything was used in a bowhead whale. Everything. Just everything from the meat, every, everything was used. Some dye for pearls, wool, bone, blood, meat, and skin. Yes? The, uh, the third suffering is, an accord, is accorded to the majority who abide in the big oceans. As is said, they eat whatever falls into their mouths. Grouper. Except the grouper is actually. Yes. So take that with a little bit. Uh, yes, they fall in their mouths. What is the lifespan of the animals? It, this is indefinite. The longest is one quarter kalpa. That's a long time for an animal. What's a kalpa? Do you remember what a kalpa is? It's about the span of the universe, something like that. One cycle of the universe. So these are animals living, I think, for about the length of the cycle of the universe is a kalpa, something like that. It's a long time for an animal, but maybe. This is indefinite. The longest is one quarter kalpa. As is said, among the animals, the longest lifespan is one antakalpa at the most. These are the explanations of the suffering of the lower realms which has now been finished, the sufferings of the higher realms are categorized, categorized into three types. Okay? So, Raphael, if you could place on the board, I'm just going to take a look at this uh, note in case there needs to be some sort of... All yeses. Later. Okay. Let's put on the board. Let's see which. Where to begin all this? Let's go back to 1994, which is really a long time ago. Okay, and to uh, Mar- Margulis's wonderful checks by Margulis on. Um, called uh, The Illustrated Five Kingdoms, that is, A Guide to the Diversity of Life on Earth, a wonderfully beautiful, beautifully illustrated book of the classification system, um, uh, one of the classification systems. By the way, when, when sci- if people start criticizing uh, the evolutionary or phy- what's called phylogenetic uh, classification systems, uh, you have to realize that most scientists don't have problems with the, the big view. They nitpick over small details. And some things move around because of some genetic analysis. But when, when, when some types of writers today, especially intelligent design writers, start trying to poke holes in, in this, they say, oh, well, the, they'll quote says, well, we're not so sure about such and such and such and such. But actually, these, these models hold up really well over and over and over and over and over again. But what happens is, as a new kingdom or a whole new class is discovered, some rearrangements have to be made. But, but essentially... It's, it's, it's working very well. It has worked for a long time. So I want to read to you... Where should we start? The five kinds of life. Right now, uh, there are those that are, that are dividing all of life. We need to find out about what life is, okay? But all of life... Uh, on, uh, as we know it, into six kingdoms. Five kingdoms, six kingdoms, and some are doing seven kingdoms. That doesn't mean anybody's wrong. 
It's just a way of dividing it because more information has come in and, and better classification is happening. Some, some, some of those kingdoms are not touched at all. But what's happening is some new creatures on the planet are being discovered. They have to be fitted in. So you, sometimes they're so different, one creates, creates a new kingdom for them. Or some that were previously in a kingdom now get moved out because they discovered by genetic analysis they actually look like something, but they're not like that. That's not happening that much. Five kinds of life. Bacteria are strange. Electron microscopy has shown that not only are bacteria very different from plants, animals, and fungi, but they are also very different from each other and from the microscopic uh, protistians or protists. All scientists put bacteria in their own kingdom called the monera or the prokaryote. Unlike uh, all other organisms on Earth, bacteria lack nuclei in their cells. Also, uh, unlike the other kingdoms of organisms on the planet, all bacteria can, in principle, trade genes with each other. So, I don't know if you know this, but bacteria uh, have been around for a very long time, about 3 billion years, maybe 3.1 billion years, okay? So, much longer than we have. As human beings, let's say about a half a million years, okay? They've been around for a long time, very successful. They trade genetic information and pieces of DNA back and forth around the planet all the time. If you want to try to defeat them, good luck. So even with antibiotics, you might kill off a whole bunch of them, but you see what they'll do is they'll wall themselves off and in layers. So the antibiotic can only penetrate so far, and a certain layer and a certain number of them will be defended so they don't actually get killed off. They'll go into a cyst-like form or dormant form. In the right conditions, of course, they'll flare again. Maybe in a lifetime, maybe not in that lifetime, or they'll get passed on. Amazing, amazing strategies after three billion years for defending themselves. And very social creatures, by the way, bacteria. They talk all the time. Not the way we talk, but they talk to each other chemically and they communicate all the time. Very sophisticated communication. Still, even until the 1960s, most biologists grouped bacteria together with all the other non-animals, since bacteria were alive but were not animals. It was logical to call them plants. Haeckel's recognition of microbes as an altogether different kind of life is still having trouble catching on. Isn't that interesting, eh? Animals, plants, and what? Minerals. Animal, plants, minerals, right? Animals, plants, minerals. Oh, maybe occasionally? Did you, you taught fungi. I'm just kidding, right? You taught fungi in school, yeah? Fungi, animals, plants, minerals. It's so old, it's decayed. It's decaying. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, decades, decades old. Still having trouble catching on. Okay. Then in, uh, then uh, Copeland, uh, P. Copeland, actually, yeah, 1902 to 1968, well, <laughs> broke up uh, one of the kingdoms into two. And then he presented a four-kingdom classification, uh, which nearly no one read. <laughs> Good science. He just didn't get published well enough. But nobody read it. 
And so Milby kind of noticed that there's now four kingdoms, and we're still at three. There's got a good, great sense of humor. One kingdom and the protists, uh, which they stuck, they put the fungi in with the protists, uh, and then so on. But, you know, just put all the microscopic beings together because they're microscopic beings. Copeland and other biologists realized that all organisms are made of cells that either have a nuclei. Let's, let's write these down just because some, some people don't have uh, much biology and these are, big, these are big words and new ideas. So let's, let's write uh, have nuclei equals eukaryote. This is, this, is, this is like big classification, okay? In, in biology, you want to classify something and know something? This is biggie, big time. Well, there are some, there are some exceptions, but this is big time classification, okay? So we have the carrots, and then no nuclei. Have you all seen nuclei in cells? If you haven't, that's okay. Who hasn't seen nuclei? Oh, well, we'll turn on the microscope and we'll show you nuclei. Yeah? Easy, easy to see. That's a big classification. That divides a lot of creatures. And the reason being is, if you have nuclei, you're a very different kind of beast. If you have no nuclei, you're a very, very different beast. Okay? But they're related in evolution because many of the ones that had a nuclei sometimes would incorporate ones that had no nuclei into their bodies, bring them in, and use them. And they became organelles. And some of them even had nuclei, and they would become organelles. So that's where actually chloroplasts came from. And our mitochondria. Our mitochondria are swallowed up other organisms that actually got stripped down and were used uh, as part of the machinery of each cell. Improved microscopes made it easier to determine the presence or absence of nuclei. Since all plants and animals have nuclei, animal cells are much more like plant cells than they are like bacteria. Should I read that again? It's, this is beautiful. This is classification. Really straightforward classification with thousands and thousands of examples. Remember, this isn't one scientist. I'm, you might feel like I'm defending science, but it's actually... Uh, worthwhile. It's not one scientist writing up a report and saying this is the way it is. There's hundreds of people studying this, and they're stubborn, they're orthodox, and it takes them years to move. And the writing has to really be on the wall before they begin to go, okay, I can't find exceptions to this. This is how it works. I can't find an exception to this. That's exactly what happened. Since all plants and animals have nuclei, let's put that on the board, because then I'm gonna make, we're going to make a bigger map. But uh, all plants and animals have nuclei. That's without exception, by the way. Still holds true today. All plants and animals have nuclei. So in other words, if you're looking for something, what's the first thing you do? You look for a nuclei. In other words, if you don't know what it is, if you encounter a human being, and you're not sure they're human or an alien, you go and you check to see if they have nuclei in their cells. Right? So you take, a, you take a cheek swab or a scraping from the cheek and you see if they have uh, a nuclei. That's what you do. 
And if you don't believe that, then you take some, maybe some blood, and you don't find any cows. Red blood cells don't have it. So what's a nuclei? We might have to look into that. Okay. Yeah. They have protons and neutrons. I'm just, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. All right. Since all plants and animals have nuclei, animal cells are much more like plant cells than they are like bacteria. So that's a huge classification. Even though a plant may look like it has legs, yes, uh, they're actually closer to animals than these other little microscopic things. Okay. Fungi are eukaryotes too because they all have nuclei in their cells. Let's put, let's put fungi. Fungi are also eukaryotes. Why, why, this, why this stress on, on nuclei? I think most of you know, no, not. Because the nuclei is a very prominent body uh, in a cell, which turns out to contain, for the most part, the DNA uh, and the machinery that um, reproduces DNA and also produces RNA and uh, leads to the um, coding of cells. So it's a rather important organelle in a cell. All right? Whereas in the case of those that don't have a nuclei, the DNA is distributed in the cell. There are exceptions to that. In the sense, there's no defined nucleus, but there are packages. Packaging. Very different, though. And then in 1959, uh, Whitaker, sorry, Copeland went, sorry, Pat, Whitaker came up and had thoroughly, he happened to actually read Copeland's work. And uh, that triggered him to something. It's called, it was called the classification of the lower organisms. And he proposed a five kingdom system that divided life forms into the groups that we present here. Whitaker, who studied pine forests in New Jersey and deserts in the southwestern United States, found bacteria and fungi to be so unlike plants <coughs> that he could no longer call them plants at all. I know people still call fungi plants, but since 1959, uh, most well-trained biologists wouldn't call a plant, uh, sorry, a fungi plant. That's how long it's been. Just wouldn't. Wouldn't do it. Why? They're so different. They're so very, very different. What's the similar, what's the similar thing about them? Fungi and plants? They both have a nucleus. And what else? I was thinking we could eat them. So we can eat them, therefore they're plants. But we also can eat mice. And some people eat dirt. Does that make them... Fungi? No. You see? It took a lot of work to work that out. That was a lot of science to figure that out. Okay. <laughs> I like this. This is a kind of a facetious statement. At the same time, a Whitaker system does not split life into so many different kingdoms that one cannot remember them. <laughs> They're making a... Uh, uh, with a little aside there on people that make systems that are so complicated, you can't remember what it is. They just split and split and split and split and split and split. I love these very complicated systems. 
this is very simple. Okay, so let's let's now write underneath uh, the five kingdoms, which has changed, by the way, since this. Let's let you know. It's now definitely six kingdoms, for sure. No, it's, it's fine. And it's not because people got fancy, but somebody stumbled onto a whole other life living on the planet that no one saw. But that was in this time, but they didn't know what it was. So post this, there's now six kingdoms, for sure. Okay? So five kingdoms. Uh, number one, Monera. Number two, Protista. Or Protis. Protista or Protis. You're going to want to know what these are. Uh, number three, Fungi. And number four, Animalia. And number five, Plantae, or Plants. That's pretty modern. As you'll see soon, it's actually six, because the, uh, the um, Protista and the Monera uh, actually got broken, especially the Monera, got broken into another one, which is Archaea, uh, the last 50, 10, 15 years. So that's another official one, but we'll, we'll, we'll break that out. Okay? So that's modern. That's, that's, that's now modern, as of 20 years. The 20, actually, 19... 59. It takes a long time to catch up. Okay? It's well accepted. This is really well, well accepted. Actually, six kingdoms is, is, is quite well accepted now. Okay? Now, how do we... This is important. So if we're going to talk about anim, the animal realm, then we have to ask, what's life? How do we define life on the planet? Why is a mineral different than a life form? Isn't that an important question? That stumped a lot of people, by the way. So what is it about life that is life? What does all life have to do to be considered life? Hmm? Maybe. Reproduce. It must be able to reproduce. So all of these kingdoms, all those creatures have been demonstrated to be able to reproduce. Okay. Otherwise they become something else like mineral, or air, or something like that, okay? So they all have to reproduce. So this is important, yeah? Good. Now, what is it about animals that would separate them out from plants and fungi? Legs? Anything else have legs? It's actually not bad. I mean, that's a good observation. But do plants have legs? Well, they have roots. Ever see plants get up and walk around on their roots? They do move. Slow. So the roots move actually quite fast. Look, well, look at, the, look at the seedlings. Three days from seed to seedlings poking out in three days. Would you, be, would you want to see how fast those roots are moving? But are they having locomotion, walking around? And are they legs as we know it? Which animals without legs? Like snakes. Yeah. So snakes and worms would not be considered to be animals. Yet, would you consider a worm to be an animal? Yeah. Why? Because they look cute when they're young? No, but they have movement. They have movement, but they're not using legs. They have a different way of moving. They can move from place to place. Didn't any of 
think it says that uh, those without legs are under the animal act. Yeah, but how so? So does that mean trees? Yeah, there's animals. That's right. Who, who don't, without legs? But does that mean that that trees can be animals? Why not? So, so I'm trying to ask you a question, which has to do with classification based on appearance. There are very big problems when you start to classify things based on appearance. So, would you say that legs? is a really good way of classifying life forms. Okay? Legs and not legs. So you see how fuzzy this is? This is you see how fuzzy this is, yes? It would make sense if we just said all legs, right? But then we find out that snakes don't have legs. But if you did microscopic examination of snakes, what might you find? Vestigial legs. Vestigial legs. Hmm, that might say, hmm, hmm. But it could be that you keep doing this, you find out that actually that's not a very important method of classification legs. So this is why it takes decades. It takes a lot of decades when someone says, all animals have legs, but actually I think some of them don't. Okay? And it takes decades to start to work. So what do you do as a scientist? Let's look at all the creatures with legs, all the ones that don't, and why they're similar, and why we call them animals. Well, it takes decades. Especially if you don't have a lot of graduate students. That's a joke. But it takes decades and decades and decades to figure this out. So you think you're sitting here and going, ha ha, we know, we, we, of course, of course a snake is an animal. But why? So all the, a lot of stuff you're, you're, you're thinking about is received information, but if you go back two, three hundred years ago, it's going to stump you. And it can become a real stumper and go, wait a minute, we've got to figure this out. But that can take decades and decades and decades of dissections and examination. So, we come back to this. Especially when you look at things underneath a microscope. It starts to get really bizarre down there. What's a leg and what's not a leg? Or you see larval forms? How about all these larval forms in the ocean, the lakes? Yes? And they, have, they don't look like the, the adults at all. And at one time, they were classified as very different creatures. So this is not, this is not, not an easy, easy thing to do. It's a bit technical, in a good way, but... Multicellular animals, this is another form of classification that went uh, down the tubes. Uh, multicellular animals used to be called metazoans, whereas unicellular were called protozoans single-celled creatures called protozoans. 
in the thought, and there's still there's still the journal of protozoology. There's still um, textbooks still being done on protists or not protozoans. I don't know because they have a society. It's powerful. But, uh, should, should be long gone. Uh, called protozoans. In the five kingdom system, however, there is no such thing as a one-celled animal. So that's been dispensed with. No such thing as a one-celled animal. Animals have what? They're multicellular. So this is now we're beginning. So what's an animal? In modern biology, there are no single-celled animals. It's finished. 